You're listening to Wiley Connected, a series of podcasts on tech, law, and policy. In each podcast, technology-focused lawyers at Wiley, a Washington, D.C. law firm, break down innovation and law with a uniquely D.C. perspective. Welcome to another edition of our Wiley Connected podcast. I am really excited to have our two uh, guests on, my colleagues, um, Tom Johnson, who recently joined us from the Federal Communications Commission, where he was the general counsel for several years, and Dwayne Poza, who joined us a few years ago from the Federal Trade Commission, where he handled a variety of consumer protection and other matters in the tech space. We are here today to talk about a Supreme Court case that recently addressed the scope of the authority of the Federal Trade Commission to seek certain remedies in consumer cases. And we've been talking about that internally at Wiley and really wanted to share with listeners a few observations from Dwayne and Tom. So thank you guys for jumping on the podcast. It's great to be here, Megan. Yeah. So there's lots of interest in this case, AMG Capital versus the Federal Trade Commission. Lots of amicus briefs were filed. It was kind of a highly watched case dealing with FTC authority. And then recently a 9-0 decision against the Federal Trade Commission. So I thought, Dwayne, with your sort of FTC background, you could help us get some uh, background on the AMG case. What was at stake? And then we can talk with Tom well about sort of what this might portend for other agency enforcement issues, because I think we're all expecting a lot of enforcement work going forward. So Dwayne, can you give us, give our listeners a little quick hit on what AMG Capital was really about? Sure. Thanks, Megan, and happy to join this discussion. So AMG Capital Management versus the FTC is a Supreme Court decision, as you mentioned, that came down on April 22nd, a unanimous decision against the FTC. At a high level, it held that the FTC does not have the authority to seek monetary relief in certain situations in which it goes into federal court. It is particularly noteworthy because it upended three decades of lower court precedent that had, up until 2019, consistently held that the FTC had this authority, but clearly the Supreme Court had a, a different interpretation. Just to get in the weeds a little bit, it deals with Section 13B of the FTC Act, which authorizes the FTC to seek a, quote, permanent injunction. And for decades, the FTC had interpreted that grant of the ability to seek a permanent injunction as the ability to get equitable monetary relief as part of getting the injunction. So it would go into court, sue companies for allegedly violating the FTC Act, it would seek an injunction, and then it would seek a return of money, which then, in many cases, it returned to consumers. The Supreme Court held um, that the plain language of Section 13B is that the FTC can seek an injunction, but it does not say anything about the ability to seek equitable monetary relief. And here it looked a little bit at some other parts of the FTC Act, which are more explicit about the ability for the FTC to seek money. In particular, it talked about Section 19, uh, which is sort of a, a different part of the statute that allows the FTC to go through an administrative path and essentially go before an administrative law judge, seek a cease and desist order for conduct that alleges is unlawful. And then after that, um, with some additional procedural protections, go into court to get monetary relief, again, under Section 19. And the Supreme Court pointed out that, you know, that is one path that the FTC still has. It is more cumbersome than just going straight into court under Section 13B, but ultimately concluded that that was, in fact, the intent of Congress to have these separate paths. So 
We can talk a little bit more about where we think the FTC will go now that it can no longer get monetary relief in these cases. Um, I, I will say um, it has an immediate impact on um, current litigation. I mean, the, the FTC is currently in federal court on 13B cases. Um, they can still go forward, presumably, to try to get an injunction. But, you know, the argument here will be that they cannot go forward to, to get money back, which, you know, given that the FTC's history, that will defeat a lot of what the FTC is, is seeking to accomplish in many of these cases. That'll be interesting to see how the FTC handles those pending cases. So, Tom, you're a former general counsel of a big federal agency who does a lot of enforcement work. Um, I know this was a notable decision, not just for the Federal Trade Commission equities, but can you comment on how you see this as part of maybe a broader trend in judicial approaches to enforcement actions or enforcement powers? I think your perspective from the FCC would be particularly interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, obviously, when you are representing a federal agency, you always pay very close attention to these cases and what it might mean for your authority, your enforcement discretion, uh, how you interpret statutes and hopes that they are upheld in court. And I do think that this is part of a broader uh, philosophical trend in which the court is paying very careful attention at a high level to the text and structure of statutes and not as much to some of the older precedent uh, that might be out there that took a more sort of purposive uh, reading of statutes and might have relied on some older equitable doctrines. There were some cases cited in this AMG case uh, dating back, I think, to the, the early 20th century in which some courts had said that a, a reference in a statute to an injunction necessarily implied uh, other sort of ancillary monetary relief. And, and the court said it wasn't going to apply that type of analysis. It was going to look very carefully at the fact that in some parts of this statute, when the FTC took action at the administrative level, it explicitly authorized monetary relief. And in this section where it said you go into court to get, uh, in certain appropriate cases, a permanent injunction, it did not mention monetary relief. And so it was much more of an analysis focused on the text of the statute. And one thing that I thought was interesting is the court rolls out this canon that dates from a, a famous Justice Scalia opinion in Whitman v. EPA that Congress doesn't hide elephants in mouse holes. It's a way in which Justice Scalia used this sort of statutory canon in order to rein in what he perceived, what other members of the court perceived as excessive delegations to federal agencies. So in that case, it was that certain provisions of of the federal environmental laws uh, made reference to consideration of costs, uh, others did not. And so only in those uh, circumstances where Congress explicitly said you could consider costs, could a federal agency do so. Same in this case, where uh, certain provisions made reference to monetary relief and others did not. And as an FCC general counsel, one thing that interests me about this is the impact it could have on future net neutrality litigation because you saw uh, Judge Kavanaugh in the prior round of the Obama administration FCC's effort to reclassify broadband as a Title II telecommunications service. Uh, Judge, Judge Kavanaugh then on the D.C. Circuit said that's an elephant mouse hole problem because we'd expect Congress to speak a lot more clearly before uh, treating 
uh, broadband providers, ISPs, as common carriers under Title II. So now that he's on the Supreme Court, it'll be interesting to see whether a similar type analysis that we see in AMG might you know, come to the fore in another round of net neutrality litigation. Tom, do you see the elephant and mouse hole line of cases, which I, you know, that it's a great turn of phrase, and then sometimes the courts have been unwilling to identify or use it. So it is interesting to see them doing that more. Are there other agencies that have run into this kind of problem recently? I think we were talking previously about the SEC. Is that is that a similar sort of set of legal issues where the courts are, are sort of putting them to the paces more? It is. So uh, like the AMG case, you know, the SEC has had uh, some challenges in the Supreme Court in terms of uh, its authority to uh, pursue certain remedies. And so there were two cases over the past two for, uh, two terms, Kokesh v. SEC and then Lou v. SEC. And in Kokesh, the Supreme Court said that when the SEC uh, pursues a disgorgement remedy, it's essentially pursuing a penalty. And there is a five-year statute of uh, limitations that applies to pursuit of penalties. And so it said, you are bound SEC by that five-year statute of limitations. In a follow-up case, Lou v. SEC, the Supreme Court then said that uh, under a separate provision that limited the SEC's ability to collect monetary relief to equitable remedies, it said disgorgement can only be considered an equitable remedy uh, to the extent that you are uh, seeking the net profits of the wrongdoer. You can't go further than the net profits in your recovery. And so I think that this shows, and these cases weren't close. I mean, these were uh, AMG's unanimous, uh, Kokesh's unanimous, it was eight to one in lieu. And it's only because Justice Thomas would have gone further and said disgorgement was completely off the table as a form of equitable relief. So I think you're definitely seeing just a broader, more modern trend towards careful parsing of statutory language to rein in administrative remedies. Super interesting. And it presents some, I think, some tough choices for parties that are before agencies and enforcement to really think about how hard to push and how to preserve those arguments if the courts are going to be more open to them. Of course, litigating questions of statutory authority uh, requires some investment and some you know, willingness to fight, as we saw in this AMG case, to, to take it sort of all the way up. I do want to jump to Dwayne real quick, and then, Tom, I want to come back and ask some FCC-specific type questions. But, Dwayne, do you see other sort of interesting questions or, or areas of statutory authority that are logically either, you know, imperiled or put into question by the AMG case or other areas where litigants and parties should be sort of really carefully looking at the FTC's authority? That's a great question. I think I agree with Tom that you, you see a trend where litigants and increasingly courts are really focusing on uh, the, the plain text of these statutes that the agencies have been using for years uh, to, to bring certain kinds of actions. There's another part of Section 13B, actually, that says that the FTC can go to court if a defendant is, is violating or is about to violate a law that is being enforced by the FTC. And they've had um, some negative precedent on that as well. The Third Circuit in a case called Shire Virapharma, which is actually competition antitrust case, um, held that um, that requires a higher showing of 
some likelihood that the defendant is actually violating the law, not just a violation of law occurred in the past. And uh, that's complicated for the FTC, even if you know, putting aside monetary relief often brings its 13B cases after conduct has already stopped um, and now must reach the standard to show that there is, you know, as the text says, violating or about to violate a law enforced by the FTC. So that's one area. And I would also um, echo what Tom was saying. The, the pair of SEC cases had a direct impact on the way the FTC had to litigate its cases in terms of challenges about its statute of limitations. Again, you know, a, a five-year statute of limitations that's not otherwise in plain language of the FTC Act, but has been effectively, I think, read in. And the, uh, the second piece being whether or not disgorgement is a, a proper remedy and how to calculate monetary relief in certain kinds of cases, which now will be even more complicated given the AMG decision. Thanks for that. So now to go back to Tom, I do want to get back to the Federal Communications Commission piece of it. We obviously handle a lot of FCC enforcement work, and now you're on the other side, no longer working at the agency. Uh, so can you talk for a little bit about what you think are some implications we're kicking around for the FCC? Yeah, so uh, what a lot of this discussion reminds me of is a remedy that the FCC often seeks in enforcement actions in the Universal Service Fund context when it perceives uh, violations of, for example, the, uh, the, the E-rate program rules or the lifeline rules. And uh, it has a rule that essentially uh, seeks full recovery from recipients of universal service dollars when there's a rule violation that's found. And this really derives from uh, the FCC's sort of general rulemaking authority and what it, what it, what it has justified these uh, collection efforts as is a sort of in, in aid of its administration of the universal service program. But what's interesting about this is if you think about a case like Lou in which disgorgement was limited to the net profits of the wrongdoer, uh, you, you could make an analogous case that in a USF collection action, that really there ought to be some sort of offset either for costs or for the value provided. I mean, one of the universal service principles in Section 254 is that, you know, quality services should be made available and affordable. And even if there's a technical rule violation, uh, presumably the service provider is providing some value or is expending some cost. And so the full recovery rule has been upheld in an unpublished decision by at least one court, the Fifth Circuit. Uh, and there were kind of some some unique factors presented there in terms of the arguments that the parties preserved. But that could be one that courts start to look at a little bit more broadly. And it, it reflects, I think, um, a, a division and authority that you see, for example, in the False Claims Act context. And it's a very similar type situation. There are some courts that will say, well, if you're filing a false claim, then basically our measure of damages should be every dollar that's been paid to you from the federal government. Because essentially, if the federal government knew that you were filing a false claim, it wouldn't have paid you everything. So that's an appropriate measure of damages. Other courts uh, look at this and say, well, what's the actual loss to the federal government? If it's some matter of you know, technical noncompliance or something like that, uh, the government still received some value 
from the work that you've done for the government. And so there should be an offset for that. And so there's a split in authority in terms of how courts look at uh, damages calculations in those contexts too. And it just seems to me, if you read the tea leaves of what the Supreme Court has been doing over the course of these past few terms in these cases, I could see in the FCC context, the False Claims Act context, uh, similar challenges working their way up to the court. Super interesting. And that question of harm, I think we'll, we'll get to in a second when we talk a little bit maybe about the future of sort of privacy related enforcement. Um, but I do want to ask Dwayne, you know, we've seen some announcements from the Federal Trade Commission that they're going to sort of invigorate their rulemaking efforts. And I thought it would be helpful to sort of put this decision in the context of that and what you think the AMG case might mean for future FTC enforcement, as well as, you know, whether they pivot to more rulemaking type activity. Sure. So Acting Chairwoman Slaughter has announced that she is going to set up a group within the Office of General Counsel um, that is going to be focused on rulemaking. And she has said explicitly that this, uh, this group is being set up in connection with the AMG decision and somewhat as a response to it. Because the FTC now has the limited ability to seek monetary relief in federal court, it can then decide to pivot and focus more on rules that it could promulgate that would govern similar kinds of activities, which is otherwise attempting to essentially regulate by enforcement. Now, the FTC has limited rulemaking authority. Um, many decades ago, Congress uh, passed laws. Um, generally, these are referred to as Magnuson-Moss procedures that limit the ability of the FTC to quickly pass rules. Essentially, they very limited APA rulemaking authority only in limited circumstances. They have to follow a bunch of additional procedures. So it's a lot more cumbersome for them to pass rules, but nevertheless, they, they ha have pivoted to focus on it. And one more critical thing about rules is the FTC, once they pass a rule, can then go to court to enforce it. And that part of the FTC Act hasn't been affected by the AMG decision. The FTC, once it has a rule, think about like COPPA, which is like children's privacy, which Congress specifically delegated them the authority to make a rule on, they can go to court and get civil penalties. And so it's a different kind of monetary relief, but it's also relying on a different part of the statute. So from the FTC's perspective, if they can pass a rule on something, even if it takes a long time, they might then be able to use that to actually reinvigorate their enforcement if they can go and get penalties. And that would be much more like what the Federal Communications Commission does. I mean, you know, I think most of our listeners would, would understand that the FTC is typically not operated by rulemaking and they have a, a long body of almost like common law enforcement actions that generate or they claim generate notice to regulated entities about the expectations and standards of care. But if they move towards more of an APA style rulemaking, I think we internally have been discussing some of the challenges that that brings. It's been discussed in the context of federal privacy legislation. Do you want the FTC to make rules or use sort of this, this common law enforcement process? But Tom, can you just give folks a thumbnail sketch of, of the challenges that, that the FTC may encounter or that what folks might raise as the FTC embarks on a, perhaps a broader approach to rulemaking that would give it the ability to go into court and claw back some of what it lost in AMG? Yeah, well, you know, there are challenges that you see in every APA 
style rulemaking. I mean, one of the big ones is making sure that uh, you provide adequate notice in the notice of proposed rulemaking. I'll say that, um, you know, while my office won, you know, approximately 90% of the cases that were brought against it during the time that I was GC, uh, the couple of times that we did get things were often on notice issues in which uh, the, the solution that we came up with at the end of the day in an order was not adequately set forth in the notice of proposed rulemaking itself. You know, there's also obviously an obligation to consider all meaningful comments in the record, including meaningful alternatives to the rule that is proposed under the Supreme Court's decision in State Farm and similar cases. So if you see regulated parties come in and say this isn't how the FTC ought to be approaching enforcement, this isn't how they ought to be approaching remedies, you know, um, I think that there uh, will be an onus, a burden on the agency to explain why it is adopting one approach and rejecting others. And that kind of dovetails with another area where there's been increasing emphasis both within agencies and in courts, and that's on competent cost-benefit analysis. I mean, the agency needs to show that uh, the, the costs of a potential rule will not outweigh the benefits. And I think there is some uh, burden uh, on an agency to do that, particularly when we're talking about remedies and how an agency will go about collecting remedies. Like what incentives does this create? What compliance costs does this create? Can we expect uh, the benefits of this regime from a, from a public perspective, benefit to the taxpayer, benefit to the federal government, uh, to exceed the cost on industry. That can often be hard to demonstrate uh, in, in a competent manner. I mean, it's one reason why the FCC over the past couple of years actually formalized its uh, cost-benefit process in creating a new Office of Economics and Analytics under Chairman Pai. But, you know, it could be some growing pains for agencies like the FTC. The NLRB was another one that did its first rulemaking in a very long time uh, over the past uh, few years and typically proceeded more by adjudication. Uh, you know, it takes a lot of, um, you know, attorneys, economists, subject matter experts to do this rulemaking, to do these sorts of rulemakings competently. And so you might see the agency start staffing up and trying to create a more sort of formal infrastructure in order to handle the types of comment and review that are going to be necessary in this context. Thanks for that. So Dwayne, you know, we've all of us have been sort of involved in and watching with great interest some of the debates about federal privacy legislation, some in Congress and certainly acting chairwoman Slaughter were not happy with the AMG decision. How do you see this playing out in Congress, if at all? Do you think they sort of restore some of this uh, authority? Do you think this has legs there? What's your thinking? So acting chairwoman Slaughter and, in fact, the rest of the, the FTC commissioners have called on Congress to pass a law that gives them more authority under Section 13B following the AMG decision that would include some form of monetary relief. I think there's a disagreement between the commissioners and, quite frankly, on the Hill, what that kind of monetary relief looks like. And in particular, there's a question about whether or not disgorgement as a remedy would be appropriate or should be added. And that ties into a, a lot of the discussion we had around Lou, for example. How do you calculate the amount of money that an agency can get back if, if they're going to, to bring in action? So I think that remains to be seen. Certainly can't predict what Congress will, will do, but uh, there does seem to be you know, legislation under consideration that would add this monetary authority to 13B. 
separate from that within these privacy proposals, which again, can't predict whether or not they will pass, is expansive rulemaking authority for the FTC. And that ties into the discussion we've been having. You know, at least a lot of these proposals on uh, federal privacy legislation would essentially delegate the FTC enhanced authority to make privacy rules and increase their role in, in that respect. No, Dwayne, I think that's a really good point. There's clearly a lot of moving parts here on the enforcement powers, remedies, disgorgement, and a lot for the private sector to think about. Tom, you know, you've been watching not just the FCC's sort of landscape here. Do you see other impacts, for example, on some of DOJ's positions? You mentioned False Claims Act, but, you know, what are your thoughts on more broader impacts at DOJ, for example? Yeah, you know, as as an agency GC, one thing that I very much needed to pay attention to internally was the limits on uh, under the Anti-Deficiency Act, which is sort of a federal statute that essentially, you know, prevents or prohibits federal agencies under the the threat of criminal penalties for for individual federal employees from appropriating money in a manner that's not permitted or authorized by Congress. So, for example, in these statutes where Congress says you know, that you, you, you know, we're creating a cause of action, we're creating a claim um, where uh, the money is, uh, you know, owed back to the United States, to the U.S. Treasury. There's arguably a limit on how a federal agency can be creative in diverting that kind of money. And so we see these sort of see prey arrangements uh, that, that some, uh, you know, that the, that the federal government has historically had with private parties where uh, it's sort of a creative form of settlement. You give an in-kind contribution of some sort. You give a donation to your favorite charity or legal defense fund or something like that. Oftentimes, from a policy perspective, arguably that could be mutually beneficial, that even the regulated party might like something like that. But you have to be careful as to whether the governing statute authorizes it. And so you mentioned the Department of Justice. They had a policy under under President Trump to uh, limit very narrowly the kinds of cases in which you could bring these these sorts of prey settlements. I mean, the EPA, for example, the EPA has statutes that actually say remediation efforts can be a form of remedy. So there, arguably, there's a congressional authorization, other areas in which it's not so, so sure. So I think that this is an area in which be interesting to see if DOJ continues this policy now under a new administration. Be interesting to see how federal agencies react to some of this new case law we've been discussing. And it might limit some of the creativity that regulated parties have too to settle claims under which they're under investigation. Now that's super interesting. Um, speaking of creativity, Dwayne, any final thoughts? This has been a super interesting conversation. There's a lot, obviously, as we've discussed, for clients in the private sector to be thinking on, particularly at the start of a new administration where they're setting new enforcement priorities, lots of moving parts um, to to look at. But Dwayne, any sort of closing thoughts on on what we're thinking about for the future? Yeah, I I guess I'd close by saying that, um, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about in this discussion, uh, the, the background is that agencies can get pretty creative when they're pursuing their priorities. Um, you have a new administration, it has certain enforcement priorities, has certain regulatory priorities, and the incentive is for the agency to try to find ways to make that work. And sometimes that means pushing its statutory authority or coming up with new rules, and we can expect to see that happen. So I think the final takeaway is it's important to watch 
where the agency is headed uh, just because you have a decision like AMG or other decisions that are affecting other federal agencies doesn't mean they will necessarily slow down. I think they will continue to be creative and folks should be ready to engage uh, wherever they go. Thank you for tuning in to the Wiley Connected podcast brought to you by the attorneys at Wiley. If you enjoyed this episode of Wiley Connected, we encourage you to subscribe, rate, and leave a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For additional resources and materials, head over to WileyConnect.com. Thank you for listening. The views, information, or opinions expressed during the series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Wiley Ryan LLP and its employees. The material contained in this podcast is not intended to be and is not considered to be legal advice. Transmission is not intended to create and receipt does not establish an attorney-client relationship.